you're in trouble. <laughs> you know when the pastor brings a lot of books to the pulpit, uh, you might want to gird up your loins. No, I just have a quote that I want to share with you from something that's, I think, quite good. So this morning we're going to be back in Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to continue to unpackage what Paul has for us here in this wonderful epistle. Um, I'm enjoying our time in this epistle, and um, I know it's been a significant period of time, but that's okay. Um, there's a lot here and things that we want to be able to glean and, and to consider. And so uh, it's certainly timely. The church is facing a lot of unique challenges um, today, and I think Paul's letter is a good reminder to us how important truth is and how earnestly we ought to guard it and how jealously we ought to cherish it um, and love it. We are to buy the truth and sell it not. And so we need to be on our guard and to be alert to what is taking place. And so today we'll continue to um, perhaps uh, get a greater understanding of the importance of um, what it means to live as a Christian and to demonstrate the reality of our conversion and our conduct and the way that we interact with others. And to certainly know that um, we are who we are because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, which is an important theme for Paul in Colossians. Before we get into the passage today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this day. We thank you that we are able to be here, and um, even though the weather is challenging, we are uh, certainly warmed by being able to be together as the redeemed of God and to be assembled here singing and, and lifting up our voices to you, reading your word, fellowshipping with each other, really the remarkable genius of the local New Testament church. And we're so thankful for all that you have provided to us through it. We ask, Lord, that you would bless the preaching of the word today, open our hearts and minds to receive it, help us to set aside things that can easily distract us. And uh, may we, as a form of worship, actually be engaged in thinking and using our minds and reasoning through the passages. And um, we ask for the work of the Holy Spirit in that regard, that we would have a deeper understanding, that you would... Um, cause us to question any preconceived ideas that we have and to frame our thoughts within the framework of your word. Your word is the truth, and we're so grateful that you have given it to us. And even though it's under attack today, and many have rejected it, and many have reformed it and reshaped it into something that they like better, um, we ask, Lord, that you would forgive us for the occasions when we have done that and help us to be students of the word and lovers of the truth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, we'll go back and pick up and read verse 1 through 11. Just as a refresher, Paul writing in Colossians chapter 3, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. I like the way that Paul does these first four verses. Each one is a statement of fact. Um, short sentences, unlike Paul, who typically writes in very long sentences, you have these very concise, short, sharp, fact statements about who you are in Christ. Of course, union with Christ is so important to Paul. 
Moving on to verse 5. Therefore, because of what has been stated and the truths that are contained in verses 1 through 4, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So, context is so important. Uh, Context, context, context. The three rules of hermeneutics is that you always make certain that you understand the context of the epistle. So, that's important whether you're in the book of Colossians, or if you're in the Gospels, or if you're in the Old Testament somewhere, what was the purpose in the writing of the book? Who was the audience? Why? What's the central theme or message? And then everything that flows out of understanding that context then helps you to interpret and apply the verses that are contained in that particular book or in that chapter. And so we understand that Paul is writing to a group of believers in the city of Colossae sometime around AD 62 probably. This area had been recently devastated, most believe, by a very significant earthquake. It had changed and altered the landscape that was that significant. Um, Colossae was undergoing a lot of changes, both geographically and economically too, because trade routes were changing. And so this was a city that was facing some very unique challenges. We also know that um, life was not easy. Um, Life was a real challenge. Um, I watched something recently on on a particular channel that's on YouTube, a a woman who does these kind of parodies, satires, and it's a Christian from the first century sitting with a Christian today, and, and, and they're talking about different things, and the woman is remarking over the fact that she couldn't believe that the Christian today had a full copy of God's Word and wasn't reading it continuously, and that she even had the words of Christ in it that were highlighted in red, perhaps in your edition, and that um, food was spare, sparse, and that water couldn't be easily consumed, and that if you did, you got sick, and that illness and death were pervasive, and it was just an interesting exchange between the two, and I think that's something that we have to remember as well, that even in spite of all of those unique challenges that these people were facing, Paul is writing to them in a profoundly deep way. He is really taking them to the deep end of the pool with regard to teaching them about the work and person of Jesus Christ. This is considered to be one of the foremost epistles on Christology, that is, who Jesus Christ is and what he is doing and why he came. And so for Paul to refute the error of the false teacher, and that's something else we need to understand in terms of context, there's a false teacher who has arisen within the midst of this church who is creating a lot of confusion, spreading error that's based upon a form of Gnosticism and pagan spiritism and the worship of angels and asceticism and legalism. There's a whole hodgepodge of things going on here. It's a very unique challenge for them. We understand that this is a church that would be considered to be a stronger church, a stronger congregation. This is not like the church in Corinth. This is a church that had depth, had been well taught by its pastor, Epaphras, 
who would travel some 1,300 miles to Rome to communicate with Paul about the problems that were going on there. And so this is not just a, a, a weak, young body of believers. This is a mature congregation. Paul indeed commends them for their faith and their hope and their love. He refers to them as saints. He calls them the redeemed of God, and he, and he, 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 he praises them in many ways for that in terms of their faithfulness. Um, but something has happened, and what has happened is that a false teacher has come in and taken their eyes off of Jesus Christ. And as a consequence of that, they're falling into grievous error error that is leading to legalism. There's apparently, based upon the content of chapter 3, issues with regard to immorality within the church. Um, and we also will know from, chap- from verse 8 that there's apparently ang- issues with regard to bitterness and strife within the congregation, driven by speech and things that people are saying. There's slander going on. Um, so there's some significant issues taking place in this church. And so Paul here is writing to address them, and what he constantly is doing, and as we've talked about, he keeps taking them back to who they are in Christ and what foundation Christ provides to them that is immovable and sure and, and, and certainly to endure, unlike the teaching of the false teacher whose teachings will not result in anything. It may sound lofty, it may be persuasive, it may sound appealing, it may be catchy, it may be popular in the day, but it will be of no good whatsoever against sin and dealing with sin and living for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul, of course, is taking these people to, back to Christ in order to deal with these sin issues. And so verse 5, as we know, is based upon the foundation and the argument contained within verses 1 through 4. Paul there sets forth some important points in verses 1 through 4 about who they are in Jesus Christ, how they should live, how they should be thinking, what they should be looking forward to. Um, and, and noting as well that their mind needs to be set on the things that are related to Christ, not fixed on the temporal things. Of course, in verse 1, Paul says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set or fix your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. He reminds them that they have died that they have died to the old man, that they have been raised new in Christ, that they have a new life, a new nature, a new will, a new ability to do the things that please the Lord. And they should look forward to his return, as we know, in in regards to verse 4. So as a consequence of that, Paul then says, therefore, put to death the members of your body that will engage in particular sinful activities. The activities described here in verse 5 are of a sexual nature. Um, they pertain to a ver- various forms and expressions of, of sexual sins in all of their considerations. Paul, in the language that he uses, uses very vivid, expressive language to make certain that no stone is left unturned with regard to the conduct of which he is speaking, so no one has a way of escaping and saying, well, Paul didn't, didn't necessarily deal with that issue specifically. Interestingly enough, Paul's division of these types of issues speaks of the issue related to impulse and desire and lust and obsessive thoughts and the actions that result as a consequence. And, and so 
Um, Paul here wants to make certain that people understand how sin works and the progression of it. He does the very same thing in verse 8 um, in, a back, in a different way um, in regards to uh, the order, but nonetheless, the result is the same. He wants people to understand how sin takes root and where it comes from. But what's significant for Paul in, here in verse 5 and as we move into verse 6 and 7 today, and in part maybe even verse 8 a little bit, is the idea of how we respond by doing our part as, as it relates to our conversion. We consciously put things to death. We put and we're dying to an old way of life. This is important for Paul, and he's, he's emphasizing this for these believers here in Colossae. Um, the characteristics and actions of our earthly nature, that is the things that were part and parcel of who we were and what we did as unregenerate people. Paul is saying that when God saves you, he changes you. And when he changes you, he gives you a new perspective, a new outlook based upon his word, not based upon your evil, sinful nature, fallen nature. You need to understand that. Understanding that is significant because it will help you understand then how to deal with sin. It will also remind you of your ability to fight sin, and that's important for us to remember. This conscious relinquishment is an act of the will. This is important. You have a Christ-centered mindset that refuses to allow the old way of life to influence our new way of life. So I want you to think about that for a minute. Now go back to verse 2 for a moment to make certain that you're getting the idea. Paul understands that thinking will certainly impact the way a person acts. Because we have been changed, we're no longer the 1 Corinthians 2.14 person, the natural man who does not understand the things of God, who rejects them as foolishness and is not even able to understand them. Now we can understand them. We have been changed. We've been given a new heart. The heart of stone has been turned into a heart of flesh. We've been given the ability to think God's thoughts after him and to contemplate what our salvation means to be overwhelmed and consumed by the gospel, if you will, to revel in the wonders of our redemption, so much so that we lovingly respond to the wonders and glories of our redemption by living out our life in a way that pleases the Lord. We're going to be reminded of the fact that the things that are described in verse 5 are the very things upon which God's wrath will be poured out in the end. These are sinful behaviors. Now, this is not to say, and clearly, friends, again, the context is so important. This is not to say that Christians do not do these things. They do them. Clearly, some of these things are taking place in Colossae. This is, of course, driven in part by the licentiousness of the false teacher. We know from 2 Peter chapter 2, that false teachers encourage this kind of behavior. They give license to this type of behavior. They revel in this type of behavior. They mock the restrictions contained within God's Word, and they either communicate a form of a hyper-grace mindset that says you can do whatever you want, sin all the more that grace may abound, and there's no boundaries, there's no restriction. That's typical of a false teacher. Paul wants to make certain that they're understanding that a Christ-centered mindset will refuse to allow the old way of life from usurping the new life. 
Now, for Paul, the battle is in the mind. It's the beginning of where the battle is going to be fought. And so we're taking our thoughts captive. We're focusing on what it is that Christ has done for us and the fact that we are no longer bound to these things. And as a consequence of that, we then reject those things and we say no to them. Now, at times that doesn't happen. And at times we fall. The Bible tells us the righteous man falls seven times. That implies on the prior six he got up. How and why did he get up? Because of Jesus Christ. Did he get up because he thought he could just do it on his own and it would be okay? No, he got up because he knew in Jesus Christ that he had a Redeemer, a Savior, who never did those things, didn't communicate a lifestyle that was indicative of an old life, but lived a life that was in complete harmony with God's will, and in so doing, achieved for us what we could never do. And so we rest in that, and that's why we can get back up. That's why we move forward. Too many Christians are caught, as Jerry Bridges will talk about, as we'll see um, in Transforming Grace, on the merit treadmill. The idea that you have to keep working to keep your salvation and maintain God's favor by what you do. That's not what Paul is advocating here. What he's looking for is an act of the will, an act of the will, a will that has been changed that can act in conformity with God's will. What is God's will for your life? Well, it's your sanctification according to 1 Thessalonians 5, but it's also to what? Flee sexual immorality to be at peace, to speak kindly, to harness your tongue, according to James. We're going to see how that works in verse 8. To not be bitter, to not be engaged in anger and slander and things of, those na- of that nature. And so this is important, and I think it's important for us too, as the redeemed of God, to be reminded of what it is and who we are in Jesus Christ. So also bearing in mind this, We have been liberated from the old self. So we don't have two warring natures as we've talked about. It has been nullified and done away with. Meaning this, when something is nullified and done away with, we can go back into Romans chapter 6, verse 6, and Romans chapter 7 speaks of this issue. Paul uses the crucifixion imagery as as it was to to communicate the, 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 the... thoroughness of the, of the death of the old self. So it's been, a done, it's been done away with. It's been nullified, meaning this. So when we, when we understand this, it means it has been rendered powerless by Christ. All right? Powerless by Christ. The earthly nature um, is, what, is what Paul speaks to here in verse 5. These members engage in behaviors that are inconsistent with what the redeemed of God would do. And your ability to fight them now has been amplified and made able by the finished work of Jesus Christ. So, for Paul, the believer's current behavior should be the polar opposite of what it once was. So this is the problem that we're, we're seeing today in the church. We talked in Sunday school this morning about deconstructing the faith. One of the methods by which the faith is being deconstructed is to undermine the idea of sanctified living, the ability to fight sin, to say no to sin, to reject 1 Corinthians 6, 
where Paul says, such were some of you. The idea now is that our sin identifies us. I am now what? A gay Christian is what we're being told. I am some other form of expression attached to my Christianity, which is absurd. It's utterly absurd. It's inconsistent with the very thing that Paul is saying here. So friends, you must reject the idea of deconstructing the the picture that is painted in the Bible of what it means to be the redeemed of God. For Paul, it would be an abomination for someone to then identify themselves in the context of their sin. I am now a drunken Christian. I am now an angry Christian. I am now a bitter Christian. I am now a slandering Christian. I am now a gay Christian. Do you see the absurdity of this? For Paul, we move away from that. For Paul, we love the Lord Jesus Christ so much. Why do you think he keeps going back over and over and over again to lay the foundation of who we are in Jesus Christ? You would think that when he gets to chapter 3, he wouldn't have to say it again, but he does succinctly in verses 1 through 4. And based upon that and all that has gone before, he reminds them of the fact that they can now do something that pleases the Lord in the context of their behavior. Not pleasing him in the context of getting more merit or becoming more saved. You can't become any more saved than you are the moment God saves you. There is no future salvation. Your salvation is now. It's real and it's legitimate. Rest in Christ that way. Be assured of your salvation that way. So the believer's current behavior should be the polar opposite of what it once was. So with us, our former way of life is dead and gone. And we must get on with our new life in Christ, refusing to allow our former sins to regain control. So Peter does the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 1. Verses 5 through 7, he sets out seven Christian virtues that identify how a Christian's behavior changes and what they can do with regard to what they once couldn't do. And so now I can live in the context of what? Self-control, right? That's what this is about ultimately. That's a fruit of the Spirit, is it not? I can be joyful, I can be at peace, I can love, I can have self-control, I can be gentle, I can be meek, I can be kind. I can engage in those behaviors, all of which undermine the very sins that Paul is describing here. Genuine believers, the real deal, the genuine article, unlike the false teacher, demonstrate a controlled, they demonstrate the control that they have well, demonstrate that the fact that they are controlled by Christ by the fact that they engage or do not engage in certain behaviors. It's not a habit of their life. And so we need to get on with our new life in Christ, refusing to allow our former sins to regain control. So Paul lists then, or really teases out virtues, the virtues that are to characterize the people of God, which are the polar opposite of the, of the things that he identifies of course, here in this passage. So, understanding that then, we have to look at verse 6. Now, this is important. 
Now, I want to make certain that we make an important point here. Verse 6, so Paul's just dealt with these very problematic sexual sins, and, and that the idea, the root of them is idolatry, okay? That's, that's significant. Idolatry is at the heart of all of this stuff. It's, you're, you're, you're saying no to God, you're replacing God with something that you have fashioned and formed that you think is more important and worthy of your worship. Verse 6, Paul reminds us of something. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Verse 7, and in them you also once walked. Now when we see the word walk in Scripture, it's communicating to us the idea of a way of life. Things that you would have engaged in had you been given the opportunity without any real concern about it. Well, that's no problem with that. I can do that. I can be engaged with temple prostitutes and, and doing all sorts of other stuff. And there's no problem with that. That's great. Let's go. No, that all changes when you were living in them, okay? So this issue of, let's go back and talk about the issue of idolatry for a moment. This is a selfish desire that usurps obedience to God. We know that covetousness is the root of cause of most sin, of all sin, William Barclay wrote this, it is therefore a sin with a very wide range. If it is the desire for money, it leads to theft. If it is the desire for prestige, it leads to ambition. If it is the desire for power, it leads to sadistic tyranny. If it is the desire for a person, it leads to sexual sin. So when people sin, and this is what Paul is, is, is emphasizing here as well, it is at its basis they're doing what they desire rather than what God desires. Okay, so, so when we see somebody engaged in a habitual pattern of sin, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a friend, but when the pattern of their life is consistently a demonstration of embracing their sin rather than Christ, the question it begs is whether they know Christ to begin with, Okay? Now, friends, you've got to be careful with this. You cannot extend grace where God does not give it. And, and we tend to want to do this as a way to soften the blow, to be perhaps, as we might think, more loving. Is it more loving to be embracing of their sin, or is it more loving to tell them that they need Christ? Remember, we are called to be salt and light, right? Light shines into the what? The darkness. The darkness. And so we have to be careful. When people sin, it is at its basis they're doing what they desire rather than what God desires. So now think about this for a minute. Verse 5 says, Therefore, put to death your members that do these things because of what God desires for you in verses 1 to three, and four. They're the predicate for the action taken in verse five and ultimately verse eight. That's important for us to recognize. If we change that, if we begin to twist or alter that motivation, we've got a problem. We're going to fall into the trap of legalism. If we think we have to do that in order to be more saved or to keep our salvation or whatever it is, that's a trap. Or we go to the other side of it and say, oh, we're just going to do whatever we want because God is so gracious. 
So what we end up doing is worshiping ourselves instead of God, and that is idolatry. The Puritan Stephen Charnock wrote this, All sin is founded in a secret atheism. All the wicked inclinations in the heart are sparks from this latent fire. The language of every one of these is, I would be a lord to myself and would not have a God superior to me. In sins of omission, we own not God. In neglecting to perform what he enjoins, in sins of commission, we set up some lust in the place of God and pay to that the homage which is due to our maker. We deny his sovereignty when we violate his laws. Every sin invades the rights of God and strips him of one or other of his perfections. Every sin is a kind of cursing God in the heart and aim at the destruction of the being of God, not actually but virtually. A man in every sin aims to set up his own will as his rule and his own glory as the end of his actions against the will and glory of God. You got to love some Charnock. And so we see here that Paul links sexual immorality, covetousness, and idolatry together. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, he says, Do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you, as is a proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, I didn't write that. Paul did. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that's significant. So, we, we understand then that Paul is looking for Christians to act differently because they have been changed by God. The natural, the natural result of that will be to say, I'm going to put these things to death in my members. I'm going to flee from these things. Now, in verse 6, he does something that's significant here. He begins to speak to God's wrath. Look at what he says in verse 6. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Well, we know that to be true. Go back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. So Paul, again, is teasing out for them the idea that they have been changed. The language that Paul uses there in verse 21 in chapter 1 is significant. And although you were formerly, so you've been changed, and Paul had just gone through and explained how that all happened. You were formerly alienated and hostile at a state of fixed hostility, at enmity with God, engaged in evil deeds. You've been changed, and so now your behavior changes to match that transition. All right? Now, so for Paul, what is the motivation? Is it God's wrath? Or is it God's love for you and the change that he has made and wrought in you in Jesus Christ? Certainly not wrath. It's the fact that God has changed you and transformed you. That's, impo- that's important. Paul is not saying, and he's not saying to the, to the Colossian believers here, be motivated by God's wrath. He's reminding them of this. You've been basically saved from this. God's wrath is going to be poured out on the people who are engaged in this behavior, these sons of disobedience who you once were. That idea of of sonship expresses ownership and nature. By nature, you did these things. But you've been changed. You've been transformed. You've been saved. You've been justified. You've been sanctified. These have all happened to you. 
So be reminded, rejoice, you're not part of that anymore. You're no longer bound to that. You're no longer connected to that. That is no longer how your life is identified. You are the redeemed of God. Set your mind on Christ. Contemplate the things above. Rest in the fact that your life is hidden with Christ and God. Look forward to the day when you're joined with him. That is the focus of your mind. That's how you control these sins. That's how you say no to sin. You remind yourself of these things. It's significant that there are two ways that that we can often respond to the issue of motivation. John Colquhoun, in his treatise on the law and the gospel, says this, and I think this is just remarkable. Think about what he says here for a minute. When a man is driven to acts of obedience by the dread of God's wrath revealed in the law, and not drawn to them by the belief in his love revealed in the gospel, when he fears God because of his power and justice and not because of his goodness, when he regards God more as an avenging judge than as a compassionate friend and father, when he contemplates God rather as terrible in majesty than as infinite in grace and mercy, he shows that he is under the dominion or at least under the prevalence of a legal spirit. He shows that he is under the influence of this hateful temper when his hope of divine mercy is raised by the liveliness of his frame in duties and not by discoveries of the freeness and riches of redeeming grace offered to him in the gospel or when he expects eternal life not as the gift of God through Jesus Christ, but as a recompense from God for his obedience and suffering, he plainly shows that he is under the power of a legal spirit." So Paul, Paul does not jump into the wrath pool in order to motivate the people to do something. No, he's already provided them with the motivation in verses 1 through 4 and in the prior two chapters. What he is reminding them of is the fact that they are now different in Christ than when they were outside of Christ. And the ones who are outside of Christ are going to be under God's wrath. There is going to be a day of reckoning. There's going to come a judgment for them. So he doesn't motivate them. He doesn't beat them up with God's law and God's wrath. He simply reminds them of the fact that you once were part of those people. You once were a son of disobedience, speaking to their very natural inclination, who they were by nature. That's why that word son is used. That word has a lot of meaning. And so their nature has now been changed. They have been given a new heart. They have been born again. The motivation here is the gospel. The motivation is a love for Christ. Verse 7, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. I am not going to motivate you by the law. I am not going to motivate you to do anything by God's wrath. I don't want to do that as your pastor. There are too many people in evangelicalism who are doing that today, beating people over the head with the law, scaring people to death, terrifying them. In fact, they're known for this. Well, bring him in. He'll get them to do it. What's he going to do? He's going to give them God's wrath. It's shameful. It's, It's shameful to me that Christian colleges will bring in Paul Washer to beat up their student body 
to get them to behave. This is happening. Well, they need a little Paul Washer. They need a Paul Washer moment. No, they need to know who Jesus Christ is. They need to be motivated to live for Christ because of what Christ has done. They need to understand the profundity of their redemption, the magnitude and wonder of their salvation. They need to grasp the simplicity of the gospel and rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what Paul is doing for them here. He's reminded them of who they are, and because of who they are, they can now please God in the way they live, and they want to. They want to put these things to death. They don't want to go back into that. They look forward to their union with Christ. They're looking forward to his coming back. They have died with him. They've been raised with him. They're in newness of life, and they live that way. Their heart's desire, the love of their life is Jesus Christ, and that motivates them to live for him. John Newton writes of this in a very eloquent eloquent way. In a chapter in his works, the works of John Newton on simplicity and godly sincerity. And and I want to read this to you from this, this lovely old volume from the early 1800s. This is this is just beautiful stuff. The way that John wrote. Now, if you know the life of John Newton. He is the one who wrote Amazing Grace. And, of course, that song reflects the, the wonders of the transformation that God wrought in him and the fact that in his life it truly was amazing. He was a slave trader, one of the worst. He had a reputation that was unbelievable. He was a horrid person. How on earth could God save anybody like that? But what John Newton does here is significant. We, 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 we oftentimes make things too hard in terms of, of understanding the significance of what the gospel is. This, is. this is what Paul's doing here. We're living for Jesus Christ because of what he has done. Jerry Bridges in Transforming Grace. I, 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 I live for him because I love him. I've been changed. This grace is amazing. It's a wonderful thing. It truly transforms. It's changed me into a different person. So John Newton says this. And again, he's, he's speaking to the issue of, of, of how the simple gospel, the simplicity of the gospel leads to a sincerity of life. The true simplicity, he writes, which is the honor and strength of a believer, is the effect of a spiritual perception of the truths of the gospel. It arises from and bears a proportion to the sense we have of our own unworthiness, the power and grace of Christ, and the greatness of our obligation to him. So far as our knowledge of these things is vital and experimental, it will make us simple-hearted. I I love that. So, So the gospel is truly so simple. It, it's, it's unbelievable to, to me that, that, that more people don't believe. It's so easy. Rest in Jesus Christ. His finished, that's, what, that's a point he's making. He goes on to say, now when he says it makes us simple-hearted, it doesn't make us simple-minded, right? But it makes us simple-hearted in that we simply know that someone else has done it for us, 
right? He goes on to say, this simplicity may be considered in two respects, a simplicity of intention and a simplicity of dependence. The former stands in opposition to the corrupt workings of self, that's what Paul's talking about, the latter to the false reasonings of unbelief. Simplicity of intention implies that we have but one leading aim, to which it is our deliberate and unreserved desire that everything else in which we are concerned may be subordinate and subservient. In a word, that we are devoted to the Lord and have by grace been enabled to choose him and to yield ourselves to him so as to place our happiness in his favor and to make his glory and will the ultimate scope of all our actions. Do you, do you see what he's doing? What happens is that when God changes us, there's a motivation that occurs within us based upon the simple message of the gospel that drives us to to regulate our actions. This is what Paul's doing. Therefore, put the members to death. Why? Because of the gospel. The simple message of the gospel. Resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, He well deserves this from us. He is the all-sufficient good. Now, I want you to think about how Newton then motivates me, motivates you to do these things. Think about this. He well deserves this from us. He is the all-sufficient good. He alone is able to satisfy the vast capacity he has given us, for he formed us for himself And they who have tasted he is gracious know that his loving kindness is better than life. And that his his presence and fullness can supply the want or make up the loss of all creature comforts. So likewise, he has a just claim to us that we should be wholly his. For besides that, as his creatures, we are in his hand as clay in the hand of the potter. He has a redemption title to us. I I like that phrase, a redemption title. He's bought me. He loved us and bought us with his own blood. He did not hesitate or halt between two opinions when he engaged to redeem our souls from the course of the law and the power of Satan. He could, in the hour of his distress, have summoned legions of angels to his assistance or have destroyed his enemies with a word or a look. He could easily have saved himself, but how then could his people have been saved or the promise of the scripture have been fulfilled? Therefore, he willingly endured the cross. He gave his back to the smiters. He poured out his blood. He laid down his life. Here was an adorable simplicity of intention in him. And shall we not, O thou lover of souls, be simply heartily and wholly thine? Shall we refuse the cup of affliction from, the hand, from thy hand or for thy sake? Or shall we desire to drink of the cup of sinful pleasure when we remember what our sins have cost thee? Shall we wish to be loved by the world that hated thee or to be admired by the world that despised thee? Shall we be ashamed of professing our attachment to such a Savior? Nay, Lord, forbid it. Let thy love constrain us. Let thy name be glorified and thy will be done by us and in us. Let us all count all things lost and dung for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us not desire anything that seest fit to withhold, nor repine to part with that which thou callest for, nor even take pleasure in what thou bestowest, unless we can improve it for thee and ever prefer thy love above our chief temporal joy. 
Such is the language of the heart that is blessed with gospel simplicity. It was once the stronghold of sin, the throne of self, but now self is cast down and Jesus rules by the golden scepter of love. This principle preserves the soul from low, sordid, and idolatrous pursuits. Will admit of no rival near the beloved, nor will it yield either to the bribes or threats of the world. Wow. Ah, that's why I love the Puritans. The simplicity of the gospel, the simple message of who we are in Jesus Christ is the motivation. Paul reminding me in verse 6 that I'm now no longer under any condemnation. The wrath of God that is coming against these sons of disobedience, I have been spared from it. By the finished work of Jesus Christ, I have been transformed into new creation. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the way I once walked is the way I no longer walk. And the way I don't want to walk. I want to live for Jesus Christ. And because of that, I will put these things to death. I will move away from them. Because he loved me so much. That is the motivation. That is the drive. And he goes on into verse 8. But now you also put them all to death. Get rid of them. Put them aside. Don't be angry. Don't be bitter. Don't slatter. Don't backtalk. Don't gossip. Use your tongue for the glory of Christ. That's the motivation. It's not his wrath. I've been spared from his wrath. The simple gospel leads to simple sincerity in conduct simple gospel. That's all Paul's doing here. Now, isn't that message, isn't that message so much simpler than the message of the false teacher? What a contrast. Now, the the false teacher's message, it sounded clever. It sounded cool. It sounded hip. It sounded like it was going to work, but it had no effect on vanquishing the power of sin. Only Jesus Christ can do that. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. So this is what Paul's doing here. He's not beaten up with wrath. He's not going legalistic on them. No, he's simply reminding them of who they are no longer part of. They're they're not going to be under that condemnation. It's consistent with his message. Ephesians chapter 2 tells me that I was once a child of what? Wrath. But I'm no longer. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. The simple message of the gospel leads to the simple sincerity of life and the way I live. Now, friends, you've got to understand this. You've got to get your arms around this. Because understanding this gives you great assurance and peace. How is it that John Newton, one of the most wicked men of his day, indeed of history, could write something like that? It's because he knows the simple message of the gospel. He knows that God has changed and transformed him. And he expresses it in words that show a mind that has been changed by the power of the gospel.
That's, that's beautiful. Do you know him? Do you know him? Are you resting in his finished work? Do you know the simple message of the gospel? And is your life simply an expression of sincerity in the way that you walk? Not to get more saved. You can't be more saved. Ease yourself of that burden. Leave that behind. Rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement. Thank you for the fact that we are no longer sons of disobedience, that we are no longer under condemnation, um, that we are no longer bound to that. By your grace and by your mercy, you have removed us from that great domain of darkness and you've brought us into your wonderful realm of light rescuing us, transforming us, changing us, making us worthy and fit for service, creating in us a new heart, a new desire, a new will, a new way, a new look. Thank you for that. May we live our lives in a way that reflects this transformative power of the gospel. May we always rejoice that we are no longer under your wrath. May we be reminded of the fact that we will be with you and reign with you and rule with you and live with you forever and ever and ever and that nothing can separate us from your love, ever, period. Thank you, Lord, for that. Now, may we live in a way that reflects the wonders of those truths. Give us, Lord, the power to do so, the, the, the fortitude to stand like Paul did in Ephesus, to stand up and to speak the gospel, to be, bo- proclaim it boldly, knowing that you will do the good work. Thank you, Lord, for, for preserving us and keeping us. We rejoice that we are known by you in the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you.